This episode of Friends of Flow is brought to you by NCLEX Mastery. If you're a nursing student and you're about to take your NCLEX, you need to go to the App Store right now and download NCLEX Mastery. Welcome back. This is uh, Friends of Flow, and this is Tess Judge Ellis. This is Andy Witters. And this is Rebecca Porter. Welcome. We are a podcast that talks about nursing issues, healthcare issues, and trying to come at it from a scholarly, fun way. Exactly. And we're having fun today. And we have a really wonderful guest back with us, Valerie Garr from the University of Iowa College of Nursing. And Valerie, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit? Well, sure. I'm uh, Valerie Garr. I'm a native Iowan. Um, I, this is, uh, my 30th year working at the University of Iowa as of, as of March. And, uh, yes, 30 years. 30 years. Yeah. Dang yeah. It all. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, uh, 11 years working in the College of Nursing in the Diversity Resources Office and, uh, just really, uh, happy to be here. Good. We were, welcome. Want, yeah, we're wanting to continue our conversation, uh, related to diversity issues. And we thought we'd bring Val back and talk about a really, uh, interesting, more, um, what would we say, Val? More like up to date topic on implicit bias, which is a. Um, so, can you talk a little bit more about that? What that what, means? What does it mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I'll give you the the formal definition. I just uh, presented about this at the twenty sixth uh, annual national uh, evidence based practice conference that's uh, happening uh, happening yesterday and today uh, here in uh, Corville, Iowa. But let me give you the um, exact. Uh, definition of uh, of implicit bias, and I'm going to read it because I want to make sure that uh, um, uh, it's accurately said. So, implicit bias—it's also known as unconscious bias, or sometimes also uh, called hidden bias. It's attitudes or stereotypes that affect our understanding, actions, and decisions in unconscious manner. So, we're unaware of it. Um, these are unendorsed thoughts. Um, our implicit bias can sometimes be favorable or unfavorable, but what it really stems from are these stereotypical associations, um, but they happen to result in some cognitive errors. And these cognitive errors um, actually impact our thinking, which in terms can impact our decision-making. They can hinder our assessment of um, other people, and certainly when we're talking about in health sciences area, uh, in clinical settings, it can really impact um, our assessment of our patients. So Val, how, so this reminds me of stereotyping, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And stereotyping is, and so I don't know how it's a little different. I just think it might be just putting different words on stereotype, or do you, do you guys parse down that difference at all? The implicit bias actually, I think, uh, starts first with, um, because... It's a perception, isn't it? Right, Mm -hmm. because the bias part of it, the implicit bias is where you're pulling all these stereotypical associations together and then you're using these mental shortcuts or mental maps in order to categorize people. And everybody does it. So is that what you mean by cognitive error? Well, cognitive errors are the result the of actions. the yeah. actions of what happens when you take these stereotypical associations. And then uh, rather than um, using um, reflective, the reflective part of your brain where you're able to actually base your decisions off of knowledge and facts, um, instead now you're using uh, more of an automatic or impulsive part of your brain. And so you're just 
taking any associations or linkages or orientations that you have about people, but you're using schemas or also known as categorizations of people. So if we look at some of the different cultural identities that we all bring to the table, our race, our gender, our sexual orientation, our language, um, you know, our size, um, the type of community that we grew up in, um, when we are put in a position where we don't maybe know so much about a, a wide range of people, but, but we're all, we're all of a sudden challenged to, to have to uh, engage with people or interact with them in ways. Um, we go directly to those categorizations, uh, whether we have experience in them or not. And so as a result of that, um, we go to these mental shortcuts and every, the thing about in, in, implicit bias is that it's pervasive. Everybody has implicit bias. I don't care who you are, what right. race you are. Yeah. Everybody right, 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 has right. It. It's a lens. Can you it, give us an example of, of an implicit well, so I, bias? I'm going to in... talk about like this is, because this is, I mean, we make cognitive shortcuts all the time. We do. So it's, and I think in healthcare, almost you have to. I mean, it's a, you can't, okay, so for example, the person with depression, the person who had a gallbladder surgery, oh. the person who had, you know, remember the olden days when you say the gallbladder in room 22? Or the, you know, I mean, your land is, you know, the, de- you know, person with dementia. And, you know, so we make that kind of a, a broad statement of this. I, I still think and that then, goes on today, though. Oh, my you know, gosh. I mean, it's, it's big it's, time. No, no, no. It's mean, big. It's... Yeah. So it's a, in my mind, the implicit bias takes it to the next step. It's saying, I know everything about the person with dementia because I've put them into this group called person with dementia. Mm-hmm. And so when you act on that cognitive shortcut and you don't filter it through reflection, that's where your cognitive error comes in. So it's a, and that's where also when you land only in that generalization, that's where stereotypes come up and that creates distance and, and keeps you from getting to know someone. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, you have yeah. to, you have to, I mean, in my mind, we have to make a general, you have to, as we think through things, you have to. Under, but you have to understand that we do this, first of all, right? That's right. the biggest thing. Right. Kind of going. And having an implicit bias doesn't mean that you're a bad person. Uh-uh. It just simply means that, that you're a person. That you're human. Exactly. Because <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> everybody does it. But I do think that um, we have a responsibility, knowing that we all engage in implicit bias, we have a responsibility to be aware that that exists in us and then find ways to actually um, de-bias ourselves, to try to dismantle them as much as possible. So. It's the iceberg. And it's, you know, and it's also like this, like almost a, um, once you understand that, that you always have this, you always have to push around it. Don't you think it's, and that's what's uncomfortable is because the, well, anyway, I don't want to keep I wanna going on this, and on. Okay. Keep this, going on. This quote from uh Dr. Dina Hasuna, uh, she's from the Oregon Health and Science University School of Nursing. Um, And she says, and I quote, unconscious bias has been widely held as a new diversity paradigm, one that recognizes the role that bias plays in the day-to-day functioning of all human beings. Yes. So uh, everybody has it. Everybody uses it um, because it is at the unconscious level. um, We're not always aware of it, uh, but if your implicit bias stays unchecked, uh, then we start moving into some explicit bias behaviors. We move into microaggressions. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and then, you know, again, if, uh, if implicit bias, uh, again, stays unchecked or any type of bias stays unchecked, then we start moving into uh, 
prejudice and bigotry. And if that stays unchecked, uh, then we start moving into real discrimination. And if that stays unchecked, discrimination can move into uh, violence. And when violence stays unchecked, that can move into genocide. So bias is at the very bottom level. It really is a continuum. All, it, it, absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. And so it seems like maybe a simple thing and an innocent type of thing. But in all reality, you know, it can it can bring harm to people if you don't check it. Mm. And that's where, and then I think how you move into errors that we make in healthcare delivery, which is, and and even just in the existence in, I mean, you think about it from your background, Rebecca, with um, bullying and stuff like that, that your professional work and the implicit biases that go on in that, right? Absolutely. And it goes into, it really is a slippery slope of going from, uh, how you perceive, for instance, something really innocuous, well, supposedly innocuous, like somebody rolling their eyes or sighing or withholding information, all the way out to people throwing things, invading personal space, throwing things, intending physical, beyond mental harm, but physical harm. So I think that's what you're talking about as well, is that when it goes unchecked, we end up at this horrible violence. I like talking about the bias part because in that it's implicit or unrecognized and unconscious because nobody sets out to say I'm, I'm prejudiced, right? They don't, well, I mean you in healthcare, we, nobody really consciously, I mean, we go into it with altruistic helping perspectives. I think, I think that's a, a very, I Let's think make an that assumption though. I think can we, we do, assume the kind you have to assume make, the kind stance. Yeah. Well, we well, have to assume though that you, that I think it's better if you make an assumption that people are good and that people want to be, it's good. a healthier way to live. It is. It's, certainly it's, a, it's a positive to, way to live. Right. Right. And then I mean, at the same time, you make an assumption that we all have biases. But we need to understand this though, too, about uh, a bias though. Um, cause I think you're, you're both stepping on a really, really important point. And, and that is, um, that, um, researchers have found that, uh, in terms of the area of bias and, and stereotypes and prejudice, it's a learned behavior and it's learned as early as the age of three. Wow. And wow. when you attach it to racial implicit bias, it can start even earlier. So this is, this is a uh, behavior attitudes that we learn. And that's why there's hope. The hope in it is that we can unlearn the stuff if we're really diligent about it, but it starts really early on. So Val, in our let's, life cycle. Let, let's get into the weeds here a little bit with, so you mentioned gender, you mentioned race, let, let's get into the, the weeds within a, a couple of examples like that we see in healthcare. Can you, can you just let yeah. uh, give our listeners some, some, uh, some, 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 some tight examples here? I can. In fact, I was going to share, um, I, uh, at the presentation I just did yesterday, I, Chris had done a literature review of it. And I just kind of want to mention some quick things that since 1997, there've been more than 30 plus studies, um, published that are relevant to the, to the, uh, concept of, of implicit bias uh, in clinical decision-making. Race was the largest influencer of medical decision-making. Um, hmm. Research shows that implicit bias based on race, gender, sexual orientation, weight, and other group identification can affect the provider's, one, interpersonal behaviors, so building trust and empathy uh, uh, and the communication skills with your patient, two, the quality of the clinical interview, three, diagnostic decision-making, mm. four, treatment recommendations, 
five, symptom management, and six, referrals to specialty care. So in the areas of race, um, um, first of all, one way that that implicit bias gets measured in a very popular way is through the uh, implicit association test. If if any of you are not familiar with this, um, you can Google implicit association test. It was uh, developed out of the Harvard University Project Implicit Program. You can go onto the website, and they have like, I think it's, what is it, like 10 or 20 uh, areas, um, so race, gender, sexual orientation, age, disability, and you can take these free uh, tests that will give you some idea as to where your uh, bias might might lay in any one of those specific areas. So um, in terms of race, um, the implicit uh, association tests were used uh, to study uh, a group of pharmacy, nursing, uh, and medical students to discern their potential implications for health disparities as it relates to to race. And um, what they found was um, that uh, these healthcare pre-professionals exhibited implicit race and skin tone biases, where there was a preference for whites versus blacks, or really a preference for light skin versus dark skin. And I need to say this about uh, race and skin color because it's it's very true, and this doesn't come from a health sciences uh uh, background, but although skin color is a surface level manifestation based on what we look like, it has deep, really deep implications in how we are treated. And so, um, and that was just one uh, area um, where race was an impact. Another thing was um, looking at uh, implicit attitudes toward Black and Hispanics uh, have been sh- have have been shown to affect pain management. Uh, uh, blacks and Latinos are waiting longer uh, in the ER. Uh, before uh, they get uh, uh, looked at, uh, before their white counterparts. Um, it impacts the treatment in thrombolysis, uh, pediatric treatment for asthma, medication use for ADHD, children's timely and appropriate receipt of medication, uh, the quality of primary care. Parents of minority children report lower scores on interpersonal relationship with their primary care providers and lower scores for the provider in general in terms of communication. Um, less, uh, And they also feel like they don't have the opportunity to participate in the decision-making as much. Um, uh, a study of 245 surgical RNs at Johns Hopkins University showed implicit preferences toward white and upper social class patients on the uh, IAT. Uh, and then I thought this one was really interesting. Um, there apparently seems to be a racial bias that impacts the NIH grants. So minorities are less likely to be awarded biomedical funding, regardless of publication and record and training. I, so, there was a big N- NIH podcast um, about this in a lawsuit, I believe, that arose from, from uh, imp- implicit bias against the name, um, what was perceived that's another uh, big part. There's been a lot of um, studies done on implicit bias when you look at resumes. And so, you know, uh, the example I gave yesterday was, you know, you could have two applicants who maybe went to the same institution, have the same type of uh, practicum and internship experience. They have the same GPA. Um, and one's name is Sarah. And the other one is Shaniqua. And um, because Shaniqua may seem like a, a more of a, and I'm putting in, in parentheses or quotes, uh, too ethnic of a name. So Shaniqua doesn't get uh, a look at, but Sarah will. Um, we've seen that uh, uh, preferences in, in uh, uh, applications and resumes, and, and even there was a, um, a research uh, done on uh, whether or not um, a male or a female could manage a lab 
a science lab, a research lab, and that women are less likely to be considered for leadership roles in managing research labs than, than men. So um, this whole idea of implicit bias is, is huge. In terms of the area of weight, that's a big one. Um, healthcare providers associated obese people with negative cultural stereotypes such as bad, stupid, lazy, and worthless. And I actually came across a research study where they looked at the impact of dehumanization, meaning that um, it's easier to enforce and propagate your bias when you dehumanize the individual. So in the area of weight, we associate um, um, animal names for people, so pig, cow, et cetera. Oh, um, and that reminded me a lot of the same dehumanization process that happens with African-Americans, the history of African-Americans by associating them with gorillas and monkeys, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So um, this whole dehumanization process is really huge. With sexual minorities, um, implicit bias has impacted uh, LGBT patients face both implicit and explicit bias. Um, transgender um, uh, populations uh, are put in a position um, and uh, to always have to even ex- explain and help their care providers uh, understand how to care for them. But they also face uh, both physical and verbal abuse um, as well. There, there was an article uh, yesterday in the Wall Street Journal about, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, maybe not, um, about uh, transgender people uh, going through airports and going through TSA. And, and going through the x-ray and having to actually be patted down because they weren't didn't get the pink button or blue button pressed when when you go through that x-ray thing at security they press a blue button or pink button to say whether you appear feminine or appear masculine yeah and the other thing that I wanted to say was in the business world again in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times there was an article about uh, one of the really big businesses were bank. J.P. Morgan had put forth the name of two women to be CEOs when this next person retired. And I thought, why is that a headline? Why? Well, because we're not there yet, you know. I know. But, Probably the first but time it's, it's happened in the bank's history. bias <laughs> that women are sure. incapable of sure. being leaders. Well, think about, you know, uh, 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 and I teach a leadership, I teach an undergraduate leadership course here at Iowa as well uh, with uh, uh, students from a wide range of dif- different disciplines, including nursing interest majors. But it's interesting when I surveyed my class about leadership, uh, not only uh, are, are males often always thought of as only being leaders, but um, never any other different races. Um, individuals with disabilities uh, struggle with being seen as having leadership skills. So, uh, our bias is strong in so many areas, and that's just it. Until you're challenged to actually think about why you're always um, thinking that way, um, you could go for a long time and never have your implicit bias be challenged. So I want to just interject again. I was talking to a professor here, this is a few years ago, who is in psychology because I was interested in um, interdisciplinary or intra, whatever it is, um, understandings of compassion and empathy. And this psychology professor, I, I can't remember where the work is published, but he showed me the work, his research. And what he did was he had um, undergraduate students of different races, uh, everybody, men, women, in the 18 to 21-year-old. Um, and, and they flashed on the screen at one-tenth 
of a second, and the students had to press a button whether there was pain or not. And they had a hand with a, an open palm with a needle stuck into it. It just stuck, jabbed into the hand. And overwhelmingly, people said that the black hand didn't, the person with the black hand didn't feel the pain and wouldn't receive pain medication as much as the white hand with the needle stuck in it. And that's a, a big issue that we see so in healthcare with in pain healthcare, management. healthcare, pain management, yeah. you mentioned that earlier, yeah. and I just wanted to bring out that it's huge. verified. Yeah. It's huge. It's huge. There's a whole host of, of things. Religion is also an implicit bias. Uh, women, particularly since 9-11, uh, Muslim patients have really talked about the impact of how difficult it is um, with healthcare uh, providers, but particularly women wearing hijabs um, also said that healthcare providers often make um, certain assumptions about their modesty as well as their intellect um, based off of their traditional attire. Um, Gender, uh, women we know receive fewer healthcare interventions than men with comparable health problems on a wide range of things. And again, that has a lot to do with implicit bias. Uh, uh, socioeconomic class, there actually was a qualitative study funded through the University of Iowa, Carver College of Medicine, where they researched the perceptions of low SES patients at University of Iowa hospital and clinics regarding how their uh, socioeconomic class might affect the care that they receive. And what they found was that subjects are conscious of the differences that exist between them and their and higher SES patients in terms of the care that they receive. So um, there's a lot out there. Most of the studies that have been done on implicit bias, in all honesty, though, have been with physicians. Um, so I think with um, nurses, that's still kind of a new area to um, be focused on. But there is some out there, but a lot of it is is, is on physicians, though. Mm. Interesting. I remember when we did some cultural competence work a long time ago, Val, that in the study, there's a classic one from, I think it's in JAMA that talks about, they were, and it was internal medicine or family practice physicians, and they had a script that was the exact same script on uh, cardiac issues. It was a basically a chest pain case, and they had a black woman, a black man, a white woman, and a white man actors all doing the exact same script. And the one who got the most aggressive intervention was actually the white male. And, of course, the black female got the worst. And, but what was really interesting when we, did, when we talked about this study was the defensiveness that came up. Really? In the discussions and the defensiveness that went on, like when the, how the study was debunked to by just to justify the yeah and, and just to, well to kind of um try to to um make it not valid like the design of the study and all of these things so it was a really um that i think those defensive behaviors are um something to talk about you know those behaviors that come up that spectrum of behavior that goes on with I think, um, bias i i think we're still a country that struggles with having real open and honest dialogue about race yeah okay so it looks like we're about time for a break that's a good place to end because then we can come right back and talk about the dialogues that could be important to have so we'll be friends of fro taking flow friends of flow <laughs> taking a break here at NCLEX Mastery, we love nurses and especially nursing students, but we need your feedback about this podcast. If you have ideas on topics or you have questions you want us to answer, shoot us a message, leave a comment, go to our Facebook page and just tell us what you think because we want to help you in the most specific way that you need that help. Thank you so much. This is um, Friends of Flow and welcome back. We're 
coming back from a break, and I'm Tess Judge Ellis. This is Andy Witters here. I'm Rebecca Porter. And, and Valerie Gar. And who? Valerie Gar. All right. All right. Thanks for being here, Valerie. So, so in this in this uh, this broad spectrum of of implicit bias that can lead to, to violence of of populations, I'm we, we've given some some clinical examples of of how um, how this is present in in, in in healthcare from provider to patient. I'm interested in in workplace the, the phenomenon of horizontal violence, which is it's 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 the the phenomenon of uh nurse on nurse um uh aggression right uh argument that gives rise to uh things like bullying um um toxic work work environments is there is there something there with implicit bias that that influences um our our work environment particularly with with, with each other, the, the people that we rub shoulders with in the, in the break room, the people that that we um, collaborate with at the at the bedside, and um, at, you know at the, at the nurses station in our clinics, etc. Um, that's a great question. There's lots of things to think about uh, related to that question. Um, I'm a visual person, so I wish I, I had the ability to be able to show this, but um, there's a pyramid structure that uh, was developed by the Anti-Defamation League many, many years ago. And it's where I, where I alluded to before that, that when your bias stays unchecked, it moves into these other realms, prejudice, bigotry, discrimination, violence, and then genocide. But at the bottom is acts of bias. And some of the, the behaviors that are, that are uh, demonstrative of acts of bias include stereotypes, uh, making jokes about uh, people for the sake of being harmful. Not, this isn't about two people who have interaction and engagement with each other and then they're making jokes. That's one thing. But this is just, you know, you know, using jokes as a way to continue to keep those on the outside on the outside, so to speak. Um, bullying, uh, antagonism, accepting negative information about people while you're screening out any positive information that could be about people. So, for example, um, maybe uh, one of your uh, colleagues, maybe they've done, you know, you know, have have had one or two mistakes or something that they've done, you know, in the workplace environment. But there are many other positive things that that person has contributed towards the environment. You don't pay attention to anything that was positive. And disqualifying the positive because of the negative. Exactly. And then how that associates when you're already stereotyping. Right. And then that becomes Mm -hmm. snowballed. So all of a sudden now this person's negative um, impacts become snowballed and you slowly push down that's a anything very that's positive. interesting that's so done in when a hierarchical think about, yes. yeah when you think about medication errors or medical errors that ha- can happen to any one of us anytime that it we're trying at the work environment to have compassion for that person and not get into that snowballing that that one mistake is going to uh, limit their... Or define their career. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, define their character. Yeah. You know, because it starts first by character um, assassination, you know, before you get to the career part of it. So so some other things are justifying your biases by seeking out like-minded people. So again, I want to hold this against somebody. I'm going to try to find as many other soldiers to follow along with me, right? Um, and then there becomes a real power structure with that too, right? Mm-hmm. And then think, and then groupthink starts to happen. You know, groupthink is the idea where um, you know I'm going to get everybody to just agree with my way of thinking about it, so we can continue to push out 
uh, this person. Microaggressions, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And then insensitive remarks and non-inclusive language uh, or behaviors or activity that also really set the bar to say, you know what, you're on the outside, over here we're on the inside. Right, We call that's also called mobbing. It's a mobbing kind of behavior. And the intention is to otherize, to get that person out. Um, when you layer race into this or size or, or size, but right. you, but gender, gender, gender or, 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 yeah. or age, economic status right. disability yeah. Yeah. anything then it's just a language double if you're someone whose first uh, uh, uh language is not english right how many times do people implicitly think well either a you must not be originally from this country or b that you're less intelligent um i've seen this happen too with uh um bright uh researchers and scholars and and who have gone to other, graduated from other institutions in other parts of the world or other continents. But somehow when they come here for positions, people look at that and go, well, I, it's not one of ours, so I don't think it can be quite as good. And, you know, you see, you know, it's amazing that in some places you see these PhDs from these other countries who are brilliant and, you know, they're, they're waiting tables, you know, because yeah. they can't find jobs because people look at their resumes and see them as less. So, this implicit bias is very real, and around it, we um, organize the types of places that we work in based off of how we uh, strengthen those biases. So, yep, it's very, very real. Interesting. It is very, very real, and it's so mm-hmm. subtle. In some cases, it can be so subtle that again, until you are diligent enough to realize what's happening, you could go for a long time and just continue. Well, because you're in the majority. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're not challenged. It takes a lot of moral courage to actually step aside from this and say, hey, how, so what do you do? Can I move it into, or do you want to go into well, microaggressions? I, I do want to talk about the, the um, microaggressions. Yeah, the microaggressions. You know, and the other thing, too, is that oftentimes, um, I want to say, is it people of color, the, you know, heavy set, you know, or whatever ism that you want to talk about whatever person who's affected by bias unless it's validated and pointed out to them then you aren't an ally you might think they are but to empower someone to say no you're not crazy to think that you're crazy is gaslighting that's when the system has said yes it is your fault Mm, and that is gaslighting and that is toxic to the soul not very toxic to the soul and that is yeah. where I think those of us that sit in advantaged positions through no benefit of our own, right? I mean, most of the time, <laughs> I'm not saying none of us didn't earn our education, but we were all, or, or are privileged, absolutely. And so it's, it's I think that the, some of the gifts that I feel like I've given to people have been to just validate and go, no, 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 I'm going to listen to you. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. This is a struggle that we're facing here, there, or wherever you're, you end up landing. Microaggressions are a really, really big part of an extension of, of implicit bias. And in fact, um, I think I, I may have uh, read um, in one of Daryl uh, Wing Sue, who writes a really great book on microaggressions, everyday microaggressions, um, that uh, we can kind of consider microaggressions as the modern day or contemporary version of, of bias. Um 
Uh, microaggressions are brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, uh, but they communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative slights and insults. And research has also found that um, microaggressions, they have a real cumulative effect um, on uh, over time, and they can impact people's uh, overall mental health, too because you're constantly dealing with them on a daily basis. And the interesting thing about, you know, things like bias and microaggressions, they may not necessarily be visibly tangible all the time to people. And so, you know, sometimes when you have somebody who's been overwhelmed with having to uh, uh, deal with this invisible bias or microaggressions, and, you know, it's not like you can go to a, a bias cop and say, hey, this is happening to me. Can you do something about it? But um, but yet, does it make it any less real for people that they're walking this path with having to deal with that? So it's something to be really be mindful of. Um, it's kind of like we used to describe smog. You know, there's smog in the air all of the time, and sometimes it's really heavy, and you're just, it's like heavy versus like there's always smog. We always have polluted air that's around, but sometimes you have it all around you. Exactly. And then I think physiologically also what goes on, this kind of like – you know, constant inflammatory when you're the state. Tar- when you're the target or when you are the, Any, um, when you're the, which is the word I want, when you're the, person, the perpetrator, the, the perpetrator. Oh, I think it's, there's got to be some physiological responses. There to has both. to be, I think. And actually, um, one way that implicit bias too has been measured is through um, neuroimaging and that there's a certain part of your brain your brain, the amygdala, oh, yeah. that actually um, it's where the, the fear and threat part yeah. is. And especially as when it relates to um, implicit bias um, in terms of race, they found that in looking at people's brains that the, it's more heightened uh, for people that, that have bias against darker skin. And so there are actually some real physiological responses to it that you might not be the, aware of. And that's even the perpetrator. I put that yes. in air quotes. So yes. the perpetrator even has physiologic changes in the the limbic system. And that is really interesting. I never well, when even you thought think about, about the, that. When you think about the pleasure that a bully um, gets, the reward of the pleasure at dominating somebody and putting somebody else down because it makes them look good or feel good, of course it's in the limbic system. Yeah, who knows where that comes from. But I think also <laughs> the people that are affected, all of us, I suppose, well, it comes at a systemic level for microaggressions and then so that macro level and then at the micro yeah. level. You know, bias uh, definitely impacts individuals. But again, if it goes unchecked, bias also impacts communities. Yeah. And that's something that we also need to be to acknowledge. I also want to mention in this conversation about race, because, again, uh, a lot of the studies, too, that are out there always have black, black, white. But I also want to mention, too, that that uh, Latinos and Hispanic populations also face implicit bias in the healthcare system. Uh, uh, Asians do. And in fact, uh, there's an interesting um, research that's being done. Um, his last name is Chang. Uh, Ching, and he was looking at the um, the impact of the model minority um, perspective on healthcare for Asians, particularly in the area of mental health. And if you're not familiar with what the model minority is for Asians, um, and again, the term model minority is not something that was created by Asian population. It's it's a term created actually by white populations. And the idea about the model minority is that the Asian race is the 
the better race of the of the of whether when you're going to rank order, if we're going to rank order African American, Latino, and and Asian and Native American, the Asian race is the the model minority population that seem as most intelligent. Uh, uh, the uh, whites tend to think of, of Asian populations as, being, as feeling more comfortable or more like them, et cetera. Uh, so, uh, so again, that's not a terminology that Asian folks have created for themselves. Um, but there's some real challenges that when you have an implicit bias towards an Asian person and you're seeing them through this lens of, of the model minority, that they, that some of their concerns and challenges don't get treated with the same uh, intensity and respect that it should because you're stereotyping them. So um, that's some area of research that I think uh, could continue to go on so we can learn more about how that is is actually hurting uh, Asian populations that actually need to get the type of care they need. And let's face it, Native Americans, um, even in looking at research data, you hardly ever see Native Americans indicated in research. Usually people put behind that is, well, there wasn't a big enough uh, random sample for that. Okay, that may be true, but you know what, if I'm Native American and I'm not, but if I were, I would feel like, here we go again, we're being marginalized out again. We are a race of people. We are the founding people of this this land that, that we're here in the United States, and yet we're never included in uh, research information. So again, there's lots of room out there for looking at other races besides African Americans, which is certainly important, but um, making sure that we're also incorporating some of these other uh, races as well. Uh, but I think the thing about why white and black always shows up so much is because we have a real issue with addressing this this thing about dark skin and light skin. Mm-hmm. And until we come clean about the truth about how we're uh, feeling about this and our insecurities with that, we're going to continue to always um, uh, focus on this area. But um, it's just something that we have to be really be honest about. My goal in the work that I do in the College of Nursing here at the University of Iowa is I really want my nursing students to not only come out of our program with this wonderful degree in hand, but to not be afraid to talk about race. Right. Because it's ridiculous. This is what I always throw out to people, and I think, Tess, you may have heard me before, but I always ask whenever I'm doing presentations on this, and I did this with the group yesterday at the conference, I asked them, I said, uh, and I know that most of the people I'm speaking to are are white, I asked them, how many of you tan? Have you ever, do you do it by, whether you sat out in the sun or went to a a, little tanning booth thing? Get a little color. Or use a little orange. And I say, why do you do it? Why do you do it? Mm-hmm. And everybody says, well, you know, because I look a little bit better with you. So you do see color. So you're not yeah, colorblind. Of course. <laughs> exactly. You're not colorblind. You're down with brown. That's what I call it. That's You've right. Been down with brown. Okay. <laughs> so let's be real about that. So uh, you know, so from a, from a person of color standpoint, it's um, I can't speak for all people of color, but for me personally, it's one of the most hypocritical things that i ever seen is people trying right. to get brown. But then have issues. We'll say, I don't see color. With, yeah. Right. Yeah. This just makes no sense to me. When you've done so. I know. When we do some <laughs> talk, I say, well, what's the first thing you notice about someone, you know? And everyone's kind of quiet. I'm like, well, skin color, right? I mean, that's like the for then hairstyle and body size. I mean, these are the above the waterline. Yeah, we yeah. have to talk about it. Yeah. You know, when we were on a break, I asked you a question about the language. I was doing a presentation over the weekend, and it's... Um, And during the presentation, we talk about African-American. We say so and use it kind of a general statement. And one of the participants came up to me at a break and said, you know, 
really that's not an effective term to use. Saying black Americans is better. And so then I thought about it. She gave me the great rationale saying, you know, not everybody identifies, not everyone with black skin identifies with being an African American. And there are and white, there are white people who are African, white people from Africa. South Africa. Yeah. Yep. So, so they're African, they're categorized as African American, but they're white. And so at some point it was a, um, I think African American was used to be more politically correct than saying black. We've gone through a whole series I of, think so. of different names over the years, as have other population groups. Sure. So, um, so what what do I say? I can't, I can't give you the definitive answer for that because, again, um, um, for me personally, I interchange um, between using black and African American. I know that in writing people tend to use the more formalized African-American in speaking. People might use blacks. Um, so do you think someone who's black or African-American would be offended by a white person or in writing saying black Americans? Or do you think that that's a, because to me that's very, ra- it's a race identification, yeah, yeah. which has all sorts of social, political, cultural um I don't know Attachment that I can, to I can't, it. certainly couldn't answer for everybody. For me, um, you know, when I'm reading like a study, mm-hmm. I, I, I almost like, yeah. <laughs> you can't answer for everybody. Yeah, no, I can't answer for everybody. I'm so sorry, uh, America. <laughs> don't mean to let you down. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I think, um, number one, it, it always, um, again, um, it just depends on who you're talking with, yeah. you know, and, and the whole language thing too, is also a generational thing too. I mean, yes, I know that my, you know, grandparents, um, they, um, you know, they were used to just being called, um, uh, Negro, right. You know, that was, yeah, that was their era. That's, and they had, colored. yeah, well, no, <laughs> the color they didn't like, no. but Negro was what they uh-huh. used, but, but you raised the point. I mean, uh, in terms of the, 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 the language, um, you know, I think the use of the term minority even right now is an interesting piece because we know that the demographics in terms of race have changed. Right. And in fact, we're all, almost already a, a, a majority minority country, but the word minority really isn't reflective of the fact that th- that word minority doesn't mean majority. You know, well, you know as a matter so. of fact, that, that um, talk was in California, uh-huh. which in California white people are the minority That's right. in California. That's and right. This person was very interesting because she's black. And, in terms and, of race. Yeah. In terms of race. Right. Because yeah. if we talk about in terms of who's owning businesses or who has wealth, then that terminology, majority minority becomes a different thing. So excellent. So point. The, the thing is, it'll be interesting to see with the, the, in terms of racial demographics, it will be interesting to see what language will also progress with the actual changes that are happening. Part of the thing about language, though, too, is also based off of power structure. Because certain people who are in power are the ones that are kind of guiding what language should or shouldn't be used. And so, you know, again, um, this is where those uh, marginalized populations uh, can take the opportunity to say, this is what we prefer Right and to the, be called or to be right, used. and then the intersectionality of all like of of yeah. um, education level, socioeconomic status, exactly. and you know when we talk about the women's movements, well, that were they were um, white, well-off women who were the suffragettes, mm-hmm. and so then the intersectionality. Yeah, very fascinating discussion, Val. 
And part of it too is a class issue too for, you know, for, for a lot of people. So, you know, um, certain populations want to be called uh, certain things, you know, and some of it is even drilled down to, you know, the actual geographics to where you live. There's a certain lingo there that's maybe not as uh, comfortable or as well known in uh, those that are outside of those communities. So it's, it's a hard thing to just narrow down and say, well, this is the only way that one should identify themselves. I think it's really just a question of, of um, saying this is the terminology that I'm going to use. This is why if, if it's, if it's not reflective of who you are in the room, um, um, feel free to, to let me know what your preference is. Um, but this is why I'm using this. I mean, I think Boy, that's great. It's, it's a way of framing things. So that way, at least people understand, because let's face it in the world of diversity and equity and inclusion, we're all going to make mistakes, even though we may have the best of intentions to try to be as open and inclusive and welcoming as we can. Even I make mistakes all the time. Um, but I don't allow myself myself to stay stuck on stupid, as my grandmother used to say. My <laughs> don't grandma, get stuck on stupid. Used to tell me that all the time. She's like, "You got a brain, so you made a mistake. Okay, don't stay stuck there. Um, get up and 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 figure out what you can learn from it. And that means, and this is where I really think emotional intelligence becomes an important piece for those of us who truly do want to become more culturally competent in in the way that we engage with each other is really thinking about how can we make our vulnerability part of our ally? Because um, it's important, It's and I think it's especially hard in the realm of academia for us to feel vulnerable to not knowing the things that people think that we should know because we're quote-unquote experts, right? Yeah. Um, but the reality is, if we want to model to our students this idea of continuously being curious and not being afraid to ask questions then we should also be doing that, modeling that type of behavior by also realizing that, you know, we don't know everything that we think we'd like to know, especially when it comes to different populations of people. But um, we need to remind ourselves that that uh, that does put us in a vulnerable spot. But we don't have to be fearful of that vulnerability. Um, and we certainly don't want to pretend and act like we know it all underneath that vulnerability because that's going to come back out especially in the terms of uh, working with patients uh, in the communication process they're going to see right through that and there goes your trust level right there I'd rather work with somebody in a patient clinical setting where um, somebody says to me you know hey you know Val I, I really don't understand what's happening with this tradition in your family is this just something that's specific to your family or is this uh, a cultural um, uh, a collective cultural uh, tradition that maybe I could learn from. And by learning from that, it gives me an opportunity then when I'm working with future families that are African-American that this might help me. You know, that somebody frames something like that to me, I'm like, okay, I can work with this person versus the person that's just going to come in and act like they know it, you know, when they don't, because that's going to come through, right. you know. So I think we just have to be more honest about this stuff. And I just feel like, um, you know, um, there's so much fear out there. There's worry about, am I going to say the wrong thing? Well, hell yeah, you're going to say the wrong thing because you don't know it all. None of us does. But, you know, if we allow ourselves to to stay silent and don't challenge ourselves to, to you know, it's, it's, it's like when you're teaching a child how to ride a bicycle for the first time. You know they're going to fall. But do you stop teaching them? No. I think that that's you a... keep going. Val, thank you for being here. 
Thank you. I, I really enjoyed this. And there's so much in this topic that's so rich that I would love for us to delve into more. But we diving just, into. Yeah, I will come, come back. back again. So we can talk more about microaggressions. I think that's great. That's a really um, interesting area, microaggressions. So, but I do want to encourage everybody, if you haven't had a chance to take an implicit association test, please get onto the Project Implicit website and do it. Um, I'm seeing um, um, more... Um, nursing classes here at the University of Iowa where they're getting their students to as part of their assignments to take the IAT and then talk about it and I hope that those out there will continue to uh, think about doing it it's a great opportunity to just kind of tap in to learn a little bit more about so what yourself. is it again implicit the implicit association test um, also known as project implicit uh, from Har- from Harvard University yeah, you could just google just google that word and I did that test and I've done it too it really is kind of eye-opening it's been a while so really I take it again yeah yeah i take it again every now and Uh then and and, uh you know and none of us likes to look at the results and go wow (laughs) i have a bias towards this none of us likes to feel that way but again remember that having a bias doesn't make you a bad person it just simply means that you know you've got a little bit more work to do and to be mindful to think about where our biases come from they come from our families the people that we love the most they come from our friends they come from the schools that we've went to they come from our places of worship they certainly come from the media. <laughs> Let's face it, there's a lot out there in the media. But again, um, none of that still excuses us, especially as we grow up and, and come into uh, adulthood. It doesn't excuse us from taking the responsibility to accept a challenge that, you know what, I need to challenge this bias. Don't get stuck on stupid. That's right. Grandma says I that. like that. <laughs> I like that. So um, we're going to end this episode of Friends of Flow. Um, I'm Tess, Judge Ellis, so keep your eye on the patients. And this is Andy Witters telling you to innovate, agitate, and educate. This is Rebecca Porter. Be kind to one another. And keep your stick on the ice, Rebecca. All right. <laughs> Here at NCLEX Mastery, we love nurses and especially nursing students, but we need your feedback about this podcast. If you have ideas on topics or you have questions you want us to answer, shoot us a message, leave a comment, go to our Facebook page and just tell us what you think because we want to help you in the most specific way that you need that help. Thank you so much.